Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Good morning, everybody. I'm Jefferson Smith, sitting in for Tom Hartman today. Hope you're well and honored to be here. We're going to go straight to an interview. Across the small L liberal tradition and across the conservative tradition, there is a claim that's made, at the very least, a question. The claim is that government's first duty is to keep us safe. It is at least a question. Is government's first duty to keep us safe? As a kid, when I would hear about liberal mumbo-jumbo and social welfare mumbo-jumbo, about trying to help people live better lives, or, you know, care about trees and forests, that it was failing to acknowledge the first duty of government, which was to keep people safe. Now, I think it's an arguable preposition, an arguable proposition. But very often when that argument is made, all that's talked about next is, I don't know, the military or police. On the line with us now is Dr. Sanjeev Sriram, calling to us from California, who's going to talk to us about what's been happening with Medicaid. And if the government's duty is to keep us safe and to keep us alive, and if the first priority of any legislation is to not result in the loss of human life, Connecting the dots between what's happening with Medicaid and what's been happening with human life now is something the good doctor can help us with. Happy Veterans Day, sir. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. What are we learning now about what's happening with Medicaid deaths and the loss of life? Medicaid expansion, that is the expansion of Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act, has saved at least 19,000 lives nationwide. And in states that did not expand the program under the ACA, there are 15,000 people who have died prematurely as a result of that political choice. And that is, uh, it's, it's actually you know, mind-boggling to, to see this data because the people who did the study did the really hard work of trying to figure out, okay, if a life is saved in the 2014 to 2017 timeframe in a state that expanded Medicaid, 
how do you know whether that life that was saved was because of Medicaid expansion or because this person chose to put on their seatbelt or you know, um, got a ride when they were too intoxicated to drive? How do you know that this life was saved from that? And they did a painstaking amount of detailed research to come to this number, and it is 19,000 lives at least were saved in states that ex- that chose to expand Medicaid between 2014 and 2017. So say the numbers again, and then I want to go back to methodology. And thanks for being with us, yeah, by the way. Yeah, sure. Oh, yeah, glad to be here. Glad to be here. So the, the numbers again, if your state expanded Medicaid, you, you live in a state that, along with other states that made that same policy choice to expand Medicaid, 19,000 lives at least have been saved. If you live in a state that has chosen not to expand Medicaid, there are 15,000 premature deaths that have happened because of that policy choice. So give us some examples about the ways that lives have been saved or the ways that lives have been lost that uh, help us give some texture to those numbers. Yeah, so um, according to this report, one of the most important things that happens when people are in under coverage with, uh, with Medicaid is that they are rescued from false choices. And what do I mean by that? I mean that when people you know, manage to go to the doctor, like someone like me, and I give them a prescription, and then they have to turn around and go to the pharmacy, and now they have to decide, okay, I only have so much money in my pocketbook. I've got to figure out groceries. I've got to figure out stuff for the kids. I've got to figure out my own prescriptions. When you live in a state that expanded Medicaid, the cost of your, of your prescriptions just went down enough where you don't have to choose against getting your prescription so that you can, you know, so you can feed your family. You can afford to do both, which is kind of what you're supposed to be doing in the richest country in the world. Um, but that's actually a huge example of how you can save lives because people are able to you know, take care of themselves and do preventive medicine and take care of their conditions before they get really bad. And that's exactly what guys like me wanted to go into healthcare for, was to help people get better and to you know, not have to deal with this nonsense of, am I going to eat or am I going to you know, get the prescription that the doctor said? So in states that adopted Medicaid expansion, they saved 19,000 lives. In states that declined Medicaid expansion, they lost 15,000 lives. Did I get those facts right? And then say more about the methodology. How do we know that, uh, that those numbers are accurate? Yeah, so you got the numbers correct. And the way that we know that these numbers are right is that the researchers actually did a lot. They spent a lot of time with looking at data from the American Community Survey. It's the largest federal survey which has income, on, which has information on income, age, and other determinants of Medicaid eligibility. And then they line those up against administrative death records. And you're able to take these huge sample sets and compare, okay, so we know that this many people in this state, you know, finally became eligible for Medicaid. We, you know, and we also see that there is this big drop-off in the death rate in those states for those age groups because people who were, you know, you know, previously maybe, you know, I mean, at risk of dying because they couldn't afford to go to the doctor are now under Medicaid and they're getting to see the doctor finally. And so it's a lot, I mean, it takes a lot of time and detail to go through this data, but these researchers have done it. And 
In fact, they're speculating that the 19,000 lives saved might be an underestimate for the number of people saved simply because the longer, like one of the things that they found was that the longer Medicaid expansion has been going on in your state, the more and more lives have been saved. When we compare this with the loss of life from, I don't know, any number of uh, highly publicized threats, heck, the uh, president and previous president's focus on on terrorist attacks, uh, hard yeah. to find. I mean, it, what are what are larger drivers of premature loss of life? Maybe auto crashes. Uh, I know gun violence is is uh, may, maybe still tobacco. Where does this? If you're going to try to rank stuff, and maybe it's apples right. and oranges, but if you're going to try to rank this, put this in some context with other right. threats. Uh, how would you help give it some context? Well, I'm glad you brought up the automobile issue because what they, the researchers themselves found, this is not just me saying this as somebody who's a fan of Medicaid and believes in the program and wants to see it expanded everywhere, but what the, what the researchers found is that if every state had expanded Medicaid to the best of their ability, the number of lives saved among adults in 2017 would roughly equal the number of lives that seatbelts save across the entire American population. When we look at the states that have turned it down, I'm actually looking at a map right now uh, that I mm -hmm. think is accurate, that's showing that, I mean, it's basically the South, right? I mean, some in the Midwest as well. But where are the states that uh, Mike Bevan just had uh, just had a highly publicized loss as Kentucky governor, uh, and right. linked to his own uh, declining uh, his own attempts to decline, but eventual uh, eventual adoption of Medicaid expansion, I think. Uh, but it looks like a lot of the Southern states uh, and a lot of the red states turned it down. How would you characterize the states that? Uh, uh, have done it versus the states that haven't uh, expanded their Medicaid programs? Well, I mean, this is now my personal opinion. It's not reflecting the, the researchers. But to me, ever since the ACA went into effect in 2013, which is the first year that Medicaid expansion became available to states and that it was an option for them to either expand the program or not, it really does feel that the more spiteful your, your state was, against a black president, namely Barack Obama, hmm. then the bigger, the worst chances were that your state was going to expand the program. And it's really tragic to see these numbers because when you look at a state like Florida, there are over 2,000 lives that could have been saved from 2014 to 2017 had the state chosen to expand uh, Medicaid. You know, similarly in North Carolina, there's 1,400 lives that are at risk um, and it, I mean, they have in North Carolina, they have a Democratic governor and a Republican legislature. And so there's this gridlock that is stopping Medicaid from being expanded. And it's it's tragic that this this level of pettiness and this type of what I feel is um, racism in politics, that a, that a black president's policy is not being acted upon is tragic because the lives that are at stake and the conditions that I take care of don't really care what your politics are diabetes and asthma and seizure and cancer they don't care wh who you vote for they don't care where you get your news from and this is life or death and 
we should be better than this as people. We might have our political differences, but when it comes to public health, we need to be better than this and expand Medicaid in every single state. Well, I'll tell you, doctor, the map uh, tells the story that your words are telling. That to me, it, it's not quite a map of the Confederacy, but it resembles it significantly, right? It's Tennessee, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Florida, moving over a little bit, Oklahoma and Texas. Then it starts getting a little north. You still yeah, Missouri, Kansas, South Dakota, Wyoming, Wisconsin. But as soon as you get to the American West, as soon as you get to the Northeast, as soon as you get to Washington, Oregon, Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, uh, Montana, Maine, New York, Pennsylvania, etc., all them adopted Medicaid expansion. All of them saved 19,000 lives. And you say that might be an underestimate. And if you look down the states of the Confederacy, they all uh, crushed, with the exception of Kentucky and Virginia, who did their best to crush it, or at least Kentucky. Virginia, which just had a, just won a trifecta of Democrats winning. You move into the right. deep south, and it seems to bear your story pretty well. And, you know, what I would say about Kentucky and Virginia is that they have an opportunity to use this newfound knowledge. And, I mean, and look at what was, has been working and what's not been working with their Medicaid expansion. In Kentucky, the first Governor Bashir did the right thing of expanding the program as soon as he got the opportunity. And in Kentucky, the number of lives saved cannot be exaggerated. I mean, they did a fantastic job of saving people, and especially in the midst of an opioid crisis that hits Appalachia particularly hard, Medicaid worked wonders in Kentucky before, um, I mean, during uh, the first Bashir's term. Now that a new Bashir is in, I would say, I would ask that governor to look at this data, and I would actually ask the um, Virginia legislature to do the same, is to look at this data and to ask, like, where are we putting up hurdles in front of people when it comes to Medicaid eligibility and enrollment? where we don't need hurdles and where we could actually be saving more lives. In Virginia, they've got work requirements where I would say, you know, yeah, repeal the work requirements, but then also look at, I mean, whether you've got unnecessary time limits, whether you've got kids and families who are slipping in and out of coverage on, with Medicaid, and get rid of that, streamline it, make it easier for people to hold on to this coverage, because we have proof that this is saving lives. Doctor, do you need to get do you need to bounce? You can just stick with us for a minute. I can stick around. We'll be right back. You listen to Tom Hartman program. I'm Jefferson Smith sitting in. Happy Veterans Day. Thanks to all who serve. And thank you for listening to this program. We'll be right back. Remember the days when you were always ready to go, guys? Well, now you can increase your performance and get that extra confidence in bed. Listen up. BlueChew.com. That's blue like the color blue. Blue Chew brings you the first chewable with the same FDA-approved active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis, so you know that they work. You can take them anytime, day or night, even on a full stomach, and since they're chewable, they work up to twice as fast as a pill, so you can be ready whenever an opportunity arises. If you could benefit from extra function and more confidence where it counts, Blue Chew is the fast and easy way to enhance your performance. Blue Chew is prescribed online and ships straight to your door in a discreet package, so no in-person doctor visits, no waiting in the pharmacy, and best of all, no awkwardness. They're made in the USA, and Blue Chew prepares and ships direct, so they're cheaper than a pharmacy. Right now, we've got a special deal for you, for listeners to this podcast. Visit BlueChew.com, B-L-U-E-C-H-E-W.com, and get your first shipment free 
when you use our special promo code TOM, T-H-O-M. Just pay five bucks for shipping. Again, that's B-L-U-E-CHU.com. Promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, to try it free. Blue Chew, it's the better, cheaper, faster choice, and we thank them for sponsoring this podcast. Good morning, everybody. It is Veterans Day, and a reminder of the Atlantic Monthly article written, I don't know, two decades ago that made the case for moving voting day to Veterans Day as a way of making sure that everybody could access the franchise. Right now, in terms of governmental duties, not only to ensure democracy, but to ensure human safety and protection, we have on the line Dr. Sanjeev Sriram, who is sharing the research that demonstrates what happened with states that did adopt Medicaid expansion and those states that did not adopt Medicaid expansion. And a difference of 19,000 lives saved for those states that did and 15,000 lives lost for those states that did not. And doctor, thanks for sticking with us for just another minute or two. What do you say to those folks who say, ah, but we shouldn't give it to Mexicans. We should, what about, we can't extend Medicaid until the border is secured, until we've built a wall we don't expand Medicaid. We'll be saving the wrong lives, not American lives, not people who become uh, Americans by a, a legal process based on current laws. What's your respo response to that? Why should, we, why should we prioritize Medicaid expansion when there's other things to worry about? So whenever I, I mean, because I've heard this question before, and, you know, I always like to look behind the question and figure out who's asking it and like what how do they benefit when we are divided when patients and families who are struggling right because all of us are struggling with this current healthcare system and so many of us are you know struggling to pay for the prescriptions to pay for the copays and the premiums and everything else you know if you move between one state and another are you at risk of losing medicaid coverage all of us are struggling with this right now and by taking our struggle and turning it, turning it towards animosity for immigrants, we are doing the dirty work of an oligarchy, of an arist aristocracy that is happy to see a struggle and is even happier not to pitch in to help, uh, to help in any kind of way. And I think the only person who, bent, who is you know, really happy to see us fight against immigrants when it comes to our health care are those billionaires who are not going to be held accountable for what they owe the system. And I would say that we are the richest country on earth. We can afford to take care of every single human being in this country, regardless of immigration status, documentation status, uh, um, where they were born, whatever. We can afford to do it. We are the richest country in the world, in the history of the world. And I, I just reject the, the false choice that we can't do this for everyone. And, Doctor, what is happening? Is there any impact of this data? Are any of the states that have rejected Medicaid expansion, do we have any indication, any of them are rethinking, or that the voters within those states are demanding change? So, you know, I mean, when you, um, when you look at that map, right, that you were um, alluding to before, to me, some of the brightest signs of hope are when you look at Nebraska, Utah, and Idaho, um, these are, you know, classically 
red states and they're, um, you know, they, they fit a conservative mold in a lot of the conventional uh, political reporting. But when given the chance to ask voters, do you want to expand Medicaid in your state under the Affordable Care Act, each of those three states, the voters, the everyday people said, absolutely, yes, we must expand Medicaid by huge majorities in Nebraska, Utah, and Idaho. They were willing, like, everyday people are looking past their own politics and are doing what's right for public health. What's tragic is that you've got these state legislatures and governors who are either trying to block the will of the people, stall it, or do the barest minimum possible so they can legally say that, yeah, we kind of did what the voters wanted, but we didn't do the full spirit of what the voters wanted. And so I look at us as you know everyday people, and I have a lot more optimism that we know what we need to do to take care of each other, and it's that we have got political machines that we have got to take back and reown and bring them to our will. Well, Doctor, really appreciate your time. If there's a, if there were a site or a reference that you wanted to plug that you wanted people to take a look at, where you wanted people to find out more, where would that be? Well, the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities has this report that we've been referring to on their website. It's cbpp.org. I myself am working on Medicare for All and, and making racial justice a cornerstone of Medicare for All. And that work can be found at socialsecurityworks.org slash allmeansall. And you're at Twitter at act Dr. Shriram, which is D-R-S-R-I-R-A-M. Doctor, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much. Happy Veterans Day. Well, folks, as we figure out how to protect a country, and as we celebrate a day that celebrates people who helped protect a country, who helped defeat American enemies, let's think carefully about what those American enemies are. Let's think about what protection in the 21st century really means. What are the threats we really face? And if you're listing those threats, how many of those threats are internal? And by that, I don't just mean domestic terrorists. I don't mean criminals. I mean our ability versus our inability to apply existing medical expertise with existing resources in existing facilities to make sure that our people don't die. And I know that there is effort to divide human beings. I know that there is incredible effort to say, no, no, no. Don't worry about what's happening with gaping wealth disparities and divisions of power greater than any time since the turn of the last century. Just worry about the other. But if we're thinking about the country and protecting the country, protecting the people here, let's be real about what we're really protecting. And if we're protecting human life, well, keeping people healthy, pretty good start. We'll be right back. This is Tom Show. I'm Jeff. Honored to be with you. It's the Tom Harbin University Book Club, and today we're reading from ADD Success Stories, a guide for fulfillment to fulfillment for families with attention deficit disorder. And it's really individuals as well. And mostly the book is well over 100 individual stories about ways that people have learned how to be successful in life 
and uh, just sharing them with others. A lot of these came from when I ran the ADD forum on CompuServe, and a lot of these are you know other people's stories from CompuServe, some of them from when Louise was coaching, when we were running the community for ADHD kids, all kinds of stuff. So this is from chapter five, page 47, titled Learning How to Handle Criticism and Self-Criticism. And it opens with a quote from Benjamin Disraeli in 1860. He said, it's much easier to be critical than to be correct. One of the most common and recurring strategies that successful hunters, that's people with ADD, tell about is how they've learned to handle criticism. A successful ADD entrepreneur tells the story of how devastated he was in a high school presentation that he'd spent the better part of two months on for English class. He read dozens of books, dug out arcane facts, sifted through quotes and stories and information, all to find what he thought was the absolutely perfect summary to make his point. With great enthusiasm, he pulled an all-nighter, writing the final paper, and marched off to school the next day with his head high and the smell of academic victory in his nostrils. At 2 o'clock, he walked into his English classroom and marched up to the teacher's desk, a paper in his hand. Here it is, he said, and handed it to her with a dramatic flourish. She took one glance at it, leaned over the side of the desk, and dropped it into the wastebasket. You didn't double spaces, she said. When are you going to learn to read the directions? Stunned, he began to protest to tell her about the hours of work he'd done. She shook her head as if shaking his words out of her ears and interrupted him, saying, you have to learn how to do things right. This will be a good lesson for you. I'm giving you an F for that paper, and there's no appeal because today was the last day you could hand it in. He went home that night and at the ripe old age of 14 cried himself to sleep. I learned two important lessons from that experience, he told me 20 years later. The first was that I needed to slow down to force myself to read directions. In that regard, it was probably a positive experience. But it also almost destroyed my commitment to her, to the class, to the school, and to any future academic achievement. And that was where I learned my second and most important lesson. When you fall down, stand back up, dust yourself off, and carry on. That sounds easy, I said, but how do you do it? How do you go from being angry about her, from blaming her, or for that matter, from blaming yourself? I have a picture in my mind, he said, of a man who's walking down a dusty rural road. He trips on a stone and falls face first into the dirt. Then he reaches over to the side of the road, grabs a stick, and begins to beat himself over the head with a stick, yelling at himself about how stupid he was to trip and fall. Between these comments, he's cursing the stone for being there and blaming it for tripping him. That's absurd, isn't it? But that's just what many people do. And when I imagine that picture and I see how absurd it is to wallow in self-blame, I feel empowered to get on with my life. End of quote. Unfortunately, the absurd behavior that this entrepreneur described is just what so many people do, particularly those who've spent their lives feeling like they've never quite lived up to their potential. They respond to criticism first by blaming the critic and then by beating themselves up. They rationalize the former by taking a debating position, finding flaws in the criticism or the critic, and then rationalize the latter by telling themselves that if they beat themselves up emotionally, they'll learn from the experience. In real life, it rarely works that way. People who pursue this strategy instead just end up bruised and ineffectual, paralyzed by fear of criticism or by the damage they do to themselves in the name of lesson learning. So how can we best handle criticism? And then we go through some more stories. The first step is to examine the criticism to see if there's any truth in it. Usually there is some truth to criticism, and if we can separate out the kernel of truth from the emotional baggage associated with it, we could often learn something useful. For example, when my first book on ADD was published, one reviewer wrote a scathing and sarcastic commentary on it. While much of the commentary was off-base or factually inaccurate, he did point out one real deficiency. 
my premise of hunters and farmers was based on anthropology, but I hadn't gotten the endorsement of any anthropologists or cited any anthropological texts in my bibliography. So deciding that he had a point, I sought out people with the requisite knowledge of hunting and farming culture. I first found Will Crinan, MD, who, while not an anthropologist, was one of the few medical doctors in the world to have spent years of his career as the physician to an indigenous hunting society, one of the last of the Native American tribes in Canada. Each year, every year, he followed them with his small plane as they made their annual 1,000-mile trek with the caribou they hunted. He told me that when he first arrived, he found that the previous doctor had diagnosed 100% of their children with ADD and put the entire school on Ritalin. That, for me, was a pretty good validation of the hunter-farmer theory. Then I met cultural anthropologist Jay Fikes, Ph.D., who wrote the famous books debunking Carlos Castaneda. Dr. Fikes obtains his Ph.D. by studying the few remaining Native American hunting societies of the American Southwest and Northern Mexico. After reading my book, he wrote a ringing endorsement of it, saying that his experience taught him that hunting and agricultural societies were profoundly different and that the individuals who make them up are profoundly different. There's a startlingly high percentage of what we would call ADD among some of the members of Native hunting tribes. So that criticism of my book, as sarcastic and stinging as it was, made the book better. Anyhow, the book is ADD Success Stories, A Guide to Fulfillment for Families with Attention Deficit Disorder. Say hello to Casper, the sleep company with outrageously comfortable products that help everyone sleep and live better. Their ultimate goal is a world well-slept. From award-winning mattresses to pillows, bedding, and furniture, Casper is transforming the way we sleep. With over 50,000 five-star reviews, it's the most loved and trusted sleep company, so don't lose sleep over finding the perfect bed. Their four layers of premium foam are designed to provide pressure relief for all-night comfort. I love my Casper mattress. Its zone support is designed to provide extra support to keep your back aligned. With bedding, bed frames, and even glow, a magical light for better sleep, Casper has everything you need to complete your dream bedroom. Need time to decide? Sleep on it. Casper mattresses come with a 100-night risk-free trial. Rest easy with free shipping and free returns. Get the mattress of your dreams today. Go to casper.com slash tom, T-H-O-M, and use the code tom, T-H-O-M, for $100 toward the purchase of select mattresses. That's casper.com slash tom, code tom, to get $100 toward the purchase of select mattresses. Terms and conditions apply. See casper.com slash terms. Customer experience and product reviews are based on casper.com, authorized retailer sites, and Google. Good morning, everybody. I'm Jefferson Smith. You're you. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. We've been talking about Medicaid expansion and the impact on human life on the states that did expand Medicaid, that did provide basic health care to its people, versus the impact on human life in those states that did not. And the separation, when you look at the map of where those states are, it's not entirely the Confederate South, but it resembles hauntingly the Confederate South. And we had a chance to discuss the impact of that, and now we have a chance to take your calls. Let's start with Tina from Toledo. Tina, go ahead. Jefferson, I just want to say thank you. You're the greatest substitute teacher I've ever had when Tom is gone. <laughs> I appreciate that. I don't want to disrespect your topic, so just a quick maybe statement on health care. My husband has had a fantastic job. We've been very blessed, very lucky, however you feel. He's been at his job for 45 years and has fantastic health care. 
And I was one of those 20, 30, and 40-year-olds shaking my fist saying, don't you dare touch what my husband has. And then now, all of a sudden, we're looking at each other. He's going to be retiring in two years, and we're going, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Yeah. So I just want to make the statement that everybody who is clamoring, saying, don't take away what I have, I just want to say... You're not going to be employed forever, so be thoughtful of that. But that was just a quick, because I didn't want to disrespect your topic. My actual thought was because it's Veterans Day. My son is a veteran from Afghanistan, young guy, just turned 30. And Thursday, when I read that our president of the United States of America put his hand on the Bible, swore under oath in a court of law that he did indeed steal money out of his own charity, out of his own charity for veterans and for other charities. We need to absorb that. We need to think about that. He did it for his own political benefit, and he did it for his own personal benefit. These things, and I don't understand why the media, especially on this wonderful day, is not saying why. How can we be so uh, complacent in what's going on with the impeachment when the man was willing to take from a charity? And I just wanted to get your thoughts. And yeah, thank no, I'll you give so it, much I, for I, being there. No, Tina, thank you so much. And I'll, uh, I'll offer two thoughts. One, in addition to thank you, on your first comment about, yeah, people lose the health care. I don't know, and w for the people clamoring because they want to keep it, my own reading of the tea leaves for what it, for what it is, my own analysis of what's going on, I don't know that people are clamoring first of all, and to keep their health care. I think people are scared and that they're scared of losing something with the uncertainty of what they might get. And therefore right. okay. being it. You're very, very correct. I, that's, yeah, that's my impression. And I think a good point that can be made is that under, uh, is that under Medicaid uh, expansion or Medicare expansion or Medicare for all under a single payer system, you people would be able to keep their doctor under and and they'd be able to do that better they'd be able to do that better because if everybody had the same insurance policy well you wouldn't be moving around from plan to plan so you wouldn't be moving from doctor to doctor unless you wanted to under the current system you can lose your doctor the same way you can lose your health care people are at risk at this very moment and i think the fear of change can get us to hold on to a status quo that kind of sucks but to your to your other point why is the media not uh, not talking enough about trump's corruption with charity i'm not sure i except i'm sure about a few things i know there is no equivalency to fox news and any attempt to suggest that cnn and msnbc or anything else like that is similar to fox on sort of on some other side is a entire misreading of the media landscape, that there is not uh, a contravailing propaganda arm. And most of the listeners of the Tom Hartman program, for instance, aren't that interested in propaganda. 
I've had a chance to listen to you and talk to you folks now for a couple of years, and we have smart listeners that care about stuff, care about truth, care about what's happening in the country, want democracy to function. You know, we're wrong about some stuff, share some views about some things, but there isn't that same echo chamber. So every time I hear a Trump story, every time I hear an impeachment story, and shout out to Vox for doing some good coverage over the weekend, it is a Fox News story. It is a right-wing talk radio story. As I've said before, he is not the head of the snake, he's a rattler. And if you cut off the rattler, another will grow back. That we have to think about what is actually the snake, and that includes, and in many respects is driven by, the most propagandistic media enterprise that this country has ever seen. Let's go to Tyrone in Harlem. Go ahead, Tyrone. Thanks for taking my call. Appreciate you. You know, all right. What what baffles my mind is the fact that they say Medicaid for, Medicaid for all is a pipe dream. I say everything is a pipe dream until it becomes reality. You know, you know George Washington had a dream that this this country would be independent from England until it actually happened. So if we don't work extremely hard to make this a reality as far as Medicaid for all, it won't happen. So so. The thing that, you know, when you said people are afraid of change, you're absolutely right. But you also got the fact that people are, we, we got so many people that are hateful, you know, that, that are working against the best interests of the American public to suit their own satisfaction, like with Mitch McConnell, when he said, well, I don't care if this thing helps the American people, we are not going to go for it. That's true. That's the cruelty. They say that's politics. Yeah. But I don't see it just as politics. I see you are actively, even now, to this day, he is actively killing passage of the bills from the Democrats because just out of pure hatefulness, which will be beneficial, actually, for Trump to pass some more bills. It could help him politically if he passed some more bills. Agreed. I want to amplify your point. Retweet it if I can. The march towards more universal health care has been part of the American political story for the last 70 years. And with each time, when Truman started it, when Truman tried, it has been thwarted. It has been thwarted by the American Medical Association. And when it looked like it was going to happen, when Democrats were in control of the presidency and Congress, the, the tool that was used in order to beat it back was, in fact, racism. The 1619 Project, the New York Times, did help tell this story well. And when you then look at this map of the states that turned out Medicaid expansion, and you see how well or how awfully it coincides with the states of the Confederacy, you realize, oh, what is holding us back as a country is in fact division. What is holding us back from having shared compassion, from having lives where people have a little bit greater chance, actually living a good life and staying alive, and if they get sick, getting a chance to see a doctor. What is keeping us from something that the vast bulk of people would like to see happen we can argue about methods, but the vast bulk of people would like to make sure that if somebody gets sick, they get to see a doctor. That what has kept us from doing that was first the greed of the healthcare industry, and then that greed being able to use race as a divider to make sure that the vast body politic didn't overwhelm that greed. Does that sound familiar? 
Does that sound like a MAGA hat? Does that sound like build a wall so we don't have to protect Social Security, don't have to protect Medicare, don't have to protect Medicaid, certainly don't have to expand those things? That we call the healthcare system Obamacare named after a black president? That the Republicans start calling it like that so that they can use a trigger word, so that they can use a dog whistle word to make sure that they can get 12 states instantly say, we're not going to do that stuff? Because we've been still fighting the Civil War and hoping to win it. And if we can't win it on the battlefield, which we didn't, if our traitorism isn't going to win then, on Veterans Day, let's think about what veterans actually stand for. If you're a veteran for the Confederacy, you are not a veteran. You're a traitor. And now, because that traitorous move was not successful, well, we'll just keep poor people from getting health care. Oh, but wait a minute. There's all kinds of poor people. Poor people aren't just people of color. Those 15,000 people who died needlessly, those weren't all people of color. Those certainly weren't people who came across a border recently. And if you do have shouts out to service, if you do want to give a shout out, and it doesn't have to be military service, if you want to give a reminder or a remembrance on this day, and that's why I have the honor of sitting here, is because it is Veterans Day and because uh, Tom is taking a well-deserved respite that if you have something you want to make sure we remember we'll be back with more of your calls in just a little bit but as we think about what we serve and as we connect it to tina's call when tina was talking about wait why is the media talking about corruption in the white house talking about misusing charity including to benefit military families for personal benefit as we think about what the presidency is supposed to stand for, it's supposed to stand for service. What does service mean? How can we serve one another? We'll be back. This is Tom Show. I'm Jeff. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. We're going to be right back with Tom Show. I'm Jefferson Smith. Rudy from Atlanta, you're on the air. Hey, Jefferson. I've always thought that you're the best step-in relief pitcher available, and I appreciate you. I'm trying to graduate to understudy, Rudy. I mean, this might be the day I was going well, to introduce myself as an understudy. But anyway, keep going. Well, hey, man, you know, you said something while I was on the line, and, and you're so right. Donald Trump is just a rattler. He's just a, he just a clown, just throwing out everything, just trying to distract. Let's, let's really think about who's behind supporting this guy. Well, now, how is it that you cannot want someone to have health coverage? That's a community thing, dude. When, when, when my neighbor is healthy, I don't have to worry about them catching whatever virus that is out there that can spread. Yeah, you want it to be healthy because you don't want to get the stuff they got. Right, you know. I mean, this is this is sickening, Jefferson. This this is sickening. No, I, and we I, have I'm to, with you. We, we really have to break this cold because it's all hatred driven. I mean, we're so much better together. Amen. We're so much better. I mean, there's just so many things. There's so many so many things that I can express, but we are so much better together. And I'm so I, glad. I, I'm so glad you bring it back, Rudy, to the first principle, because this argument has been for so long, like the, the dominant argument that has helped uh, develop the right wing. But essentially, it's a cult. 
And, and I don't use that, I use that term because it's the only way I can make sense of it. It's not, it's, I'm not even trying to cast aspersion. It's just the only way I can make sense of it. This dominant argument has been if you reward the powerful at the expense of the powerless, everything else is going to work out. Right? Give tax cuts at the highest income levels, and then stuff will just happen good for everybody else. And what you raise is the converse of that. That if we worry about everybody, that benefits each of us. That if you make sure everybody is healthy, I'm less likely to catch a communicable disease, and I am more likely to be able to still have my job because everybody else, because my employer isn't sick, or because I'm not sick, or because my coworkers right. aren't sick, so I can still do it. That I benefit if everybody benefits. Not the opposite of that merely, but that thing is such a great reminder, Rudy. It blows my mind, man, to hear people say what you said. Someone said, well, I don't want the Mexican to have it. What? Yeah, that didn't keep going. Uh, Bill from Sebastian, Florida. I hope I get that pronunciation right in Sebastian. Yes. This is no more than an extension of the caucus room when every, all the Republicans down there in Washington decided not to back anything that Obama did. It's depraved indifference to common sense. It's depraved indifference to minorities and poor whites in this country. It's been going on since Reagan got into office back in 1980. And it's continued. And Medicare for All is the only way to go. And that's why I'm supporting Bernie. All right, thanks a lot, Jeff. Really appreciate the call. We'll be right back. You're listening to Tom Hartman Show. I'm Jeff. Hello, everybody. You might not know the name Julie Briskman, but you have seen her picture. A picture of a woman on a bicycle riding next to a motorcade and defiantly giving the finger of scorn to that motorcade and to the president. That woman lost her job after doing that. Her name, Julie Briskman. She just got a new job. Here to talk to us about Julie Briskman's new job is in fact Julie Briskman. Hello, Julie. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining the show today. So I want to make sure I didn't get any of that background wrong, first of all, so you can add to the background. Then after that, I want to ask you about the new job that you got. But did I get that background right or what uh, details did I miss? Um, No, I mean, I think you pretty much uh, got it correct. Once that photograph of me flipping off the motorcade went viral, I was fired from my government contracting position almost immediately. And the story came out about who I was and and why I was fired about a week later. And then everything started happening. (laughs) What prompted you? You may have had to answer this question a million times just recently, given the new job that you just just got, which we'll explain in just a moment. But I've never had a chance to hear the answer. And I'll bet you most of our listeners haven't either. When you decided to flip off the president, when you decided to flip off the motorcade, what was going through your head? Well, it was what was going through my head initially was like, oh, yeah, there he is. He's been golfing again today. The, the golf course is literally less than a mile from my home. It's actually in my district now. But um, and it was, you know, the hateful rhetoric, the treatment of uh, Puerto Rico after the hurricane. They didn't have power. It was it was, you know, the treatment of immigrants and 
the, the just the entire um, attitude toward you know him actually having the highest office in the land and not paying attention to the issues at hand. And you flip off the president on a bike, not probably thinking much of it, right? Thinking, ah, you know, this is this is maybe not even an act of defiance, but just an act of frustration. And then you, at some point, you learn that people like me have seen your picture. When did you start figuring out that this picture was being seen by a whole lot of people? So I didn't figure it out. So that was a Saturday afternoon. I took that bike ride, and I didn't know that the picture had gone viral till about 10 or 11 o'clock the next day on a Sunday. Um, I was kind of lying low. I was in recovery from running a marathon, so I wasn't, uh, you know, <laughs> I wasn't talking to too many people. I just went for my bike ride to try and shake things out. And, um, you know, I, I don't think that so many people have an opportunity to be that close to the president and really, you know, to give them a piece of their mind. So I was kind of happy to have that opportunity that day. And then you learn, and then who somebody in your in your life says, "Oh, by the way," or you see it yourself. How did you learn that the picture was sweeping the nation? Uh, so a friend of mine, a friend of mine had recognized me, and she texted me the picture and just said, "I'm so proud of you." I happened to be wearing my running group shirt, so that she recognized me pretty quickly. And then when did you find out you lost your job? How'd that conversation go down? So um, over that weekend, another place that I worked part-time in the community had started to get threats and um, nasty grams and, and, you know, people saying that how could they have someone like me on staff. So this local business um, was having trouble already, even though my name wasn't even really out there. People in the community knew who I was. Um, Because it wasn't a picture of your face. It was a picture back of your head. Yeah, it's a picture back of my something. But anyway, uh, (laughs) you know. So I, uh, and then I also had had one or two folks from the media call me. So I went in on Monday to my place of employment, the HR office, and I said, listen, I don't know if you've seen this picture, but this is me and another employer is getting threats. And, um, and the media has called me. I wasn't quite sure, you know, I haven't, don't know if I'm going to talk to them, but I just wanted to let you know. And, and the HR lady said, oh, you're fine. You're allowed to ride your bike. Don't worry about it. Just don't talk to the media on company time. And I said, fine. I went home on Monday, and the next day was Halloween. I went back in. Within 24 hours, I had been fired. Okay. So you lose your job, and you decided to apply for another job. And it's not the way that everybody applies for every job. Talk about (laughs) the job that you decided to apply for, and we'll get into that. Absolutely. So several days after um, my story went public, um, Chairwoman Randall uh, asked me to run for this seat. There's an eight-year incumbent that was sitting in this seat, and um, you know her, the district. You know her values just didn't match the values of her district anymore. So, you know the, the, the election was a ways off. So I didn't give a final answer, but I just said, okay, I know I'm going to be active. I mean, on my way home, basically from getting fired, I decided I'm not going to get silenced. You know, this is another effort to silence the resistance to this administration. I'm not going to be silenced. I signed up to work the polls. I rejoined the Democratic Party. I started helping. We had a big congressional race here to unseat another, um, you know, Tea Party Republican in our in our congressional district. I helped her with her campaign, Jennifer Wexton. Uh, we got her into office in 2018. But around August of 2018, I decided, okay, I'm going to run. I, d- I went and worked for that campaign to make sure I understood what it took to do that. Um, and then I decided to run in 2018. We had a great slate of it helped that we had a great slate of candidates um, running for board seats. You know, we have nine board seats and an awesome slate of candidates. 
the blue wave was coming through at the local level, and I was really happy to be a part of that. And you defeated a former Republican. And what are your duties now in the new role? Yes, so I did defeat an eight-year Trump-supporting Tea Party conservative. um, Which are words you probably said more than once on the campaign trail. (laughs) Maybe a little bit, but, um, you know, I would maybe not have run for this seat, right, if there was a strong Democrat sitting there. That, That played into my decision. But anyway, so the Board of Supervisors, there's nine of us, eight districts in an at-large seat. And the, the two big things that we do is land use decisions. Our county is kind of a suburb of Washington, D.C., but we've grown from 90,000 people to more than 400,000 people since I've lived here in the last 20 years. We're about to wrap. Where can oh, people... Where can? No, no, that's fine. I asked you that question a little bit too okay. late. Where can people find out more about what you're up to, Julie Briskman? I am at Julie, J-U-L-I Briskman on Twitter, and I have a website, BriskmanForSupervisor.com. And do you advise that people flip off presidents? <laughs> well, I'm not going to answer that. People can make their own decisions about that. <laughs> Thanks for being with us. This is the Tom Hartman Show. That's Hi. Julie. I'm Jeff. Appreciate you. Thank you. It's the Tom Harbin University Book Club. Today we're reading from Minority Leader, How to Lead from the Outside and Make Real Change by Stacey Abrams. This is from Chapter One. I sit in the living room, a cozy space, warm in the early summer. I'm perched on the edge of a sofa next to Valerie, the home's owner, a lovely black woman in her late 40s. Across from us, seated close together on a wide settee met for one, are her two children, a son and a daughter. Politicians rarely visit their streets, which are nestled in a poorer community in South Georgia. Valerie beams with pride that both her children are headed to college in the fall. David, 17, plans to study criminology. Maya, 18, her belly round with her first child, intends to become a middle school teacher. Both newly graduated from high school, Maya will give birth in mere weeks and begin college months later, an unwed teen mother. Her intended school is more than three hours north of her home, so her mother will raise her newborn baby while she starts her freshman year. Valerie speaks matter-of-factly about the coming challenge, raising a new child just as hers leave the nest. Still, she is determined that both her children pursue college degrees that she never received. Maya, the mother-to-be, wonders how she'll do so far away from home and her baby. Yet in the next breath, she explains how college will be the best for her and her child. Their future success rests upon her. I've come to their home as part of my campaign for governor, so I asked Valerie what she expects of someone like me. What can I do to help make lives like hers better? In her soft voice, she replies, she just wants options for financial aid for her children. They will succeed, she says, if they can afford to stay in school. As I look around the modest home passed down through the generations, I understand both the pride and the desperation tangled in her response. She got them through and has given them the tools to carve out better lives for themselves. We chat more about the worries she's lived with all those years, our discussion turning to the crime and poverty in their neighborhood. Then I ask Valerie what she wants. At first, all I get in response is a quizzical look. That suggests I need to reconsider my bid for higher office. I repeat, what do you want for you? What secret dream do you have for yourself? Her confused expression turns to one of surprise. I don't know, she tells me. I've been a cashier at the Piggly Wiggly for 20 years. You must want something, I probe, something you'd like to do for you. A daycare, she admits quietly. I'd like to start a daycare center for unwed mothers like my daughter so more girls can finish school and pursue their dreams. But that ambition is beyond her. Her body language, her tone of voice, her averted gaze speak louder than her words. I press her, but she demurs with a smile. Let's just see what happens if you win the governor's job, she says. 
Valerie's house in South Georgia is not too different from the squat red brick house where I grew up on South Street in Gulfport, Mississippi. An oak tree grew in our front yard, shadowing the front sidewalk, forbidding grass to grow beneath its shade. Pink azaleas bloomed each spring from bushes that flanked the front door. Our rented house and the others set close by teemed with children, all black, all working class. We played in our postage-stamped yards, make-believing the fantastical. Superhero exploits, cops and robbers. As we got older, we'd talk about moving to New Orleans or living in one of the mansions along the beachfront that lay less than five miles away, across the railroad tracks that ran in between our neighborhood and the more wealthy environs. We dreamed of more, while our parents' lives centered around survival and making it from paycheck to paycheck. Instinctively, we understood that more had to be possible, even if we didn't know what to do to get there. These imaginings, these desires, are the roots of ambition. As adults, like Valerie, we tend to edit our desires until they fit our construction of who we're supposed to become. In such a world, I wouldn't dare dream of running for higher office, for mayor, governor, or president. At least for now, Valerie sees herself retiring in 20 more years from Piggly Wiggly as a cashier, rather than as a small business owner who helps the community raise its children. From our brief meeting, I could see she had the fire, albeit of a low burn, of a minority leader. She had ambition, she had vision, but she didn't have the faith, and understandably so. Whether we come from working-class neighborhoods or grow up comfortably middle-class, minorities rarely come of age explicitly thinking about what we want and how to get it. People already in power almost never have to think about whether they belong in the room, much less if they would be listened to once outside. These men, and they are usually men and typically white, do not have to grapple with low expectations based on gender or race or class. Ambition for them begins with the reminiscences of old times and older friendships or newer alliances. The ends have already been decided. Only the means are to be discussed. Most potential minority leaders feel the same lack of faith Valerie had, at least at some point in their evolution. We may not know how to get the first job, let alone make it to the big chair. We don't know how to take the leap from accepting our fates to actually changing them, and not just a little, but radically. Then there are those who simply don't know what they want. The drive to achieve burns inside, often without a clear target. We want to be something, but what that is remains hazy. Often we cannot articulate our goals because they lie just beyond the reach of who we're supposed to be. Ambition's scale is irrelevant. What holds us back is not scope, it's fear. And because we don't know what to call our dreams, don't know how to make them happen, or are pretty sure we'll be disappointed, we just stand still. But becoming a minority leader demands that we embrace ambition as our due. Stacey Abrams. Jesse from Pound, Virginia, who I think has something to say about the media. First of all, I think that the liberals need to remember that if we are to have the moral high ground, we have to go high. We could not fall prey to all the stuff I'm seeing on the left with the name calling, the attacking Trump supporters, or even people on the left who think, you know, maybe this is God's punishment because we screwed up so badly the last couple of years that basically Trump basically was able to slide in because we lost the trust of the American people. And this ties into a current situation going on with the Internet, constant Internet censorship, especially on YouTube. We say we're not the fascist if we're basically engaging in fascist behavior, censoring people, refusing to allow open discussion, using 
all sorts of techniques basically to villainize people for no good reason, simply because they happen to, you know, want to call out lies going on that the left is engaging in. I, I hear you, Jesse. Thanks for the call. Susan from Saratoga Springs, New York. Thanks for taking my call. Thanks for waiting. I just uh, turned you on a little while ago, and and what I can say, I've been talking about this and felt this for many years, of course. You know, I'm a burner and everything, but we really need to look at older women that are divorced. Now, I'm older, divorced, have an autistic son who's 30 that I caregive to. And at 63, it's very hard for me to find a full-time career job, nor can I do so because of my responsibilities for my son. Yeah. And so now, I've, one of the issues that really bothers me, and I think it should be a Supreme Court issue, is the fact that my, my ex-husband makes good money. He's still working, but I could collect half of his money for being married to him for 18 years, but I can't do it until he starts collecting. Yeah. You're our very last caller that we have time for today and appreciate it. And generally understanding that income and wealth inequality between men and women if the only thing we did for wealth inequality was address it for women and people of color, we would deal with just an enormous amount of wealth inequality generally. And if you go the flip side, if we just addressed wealth inequality in all its forms for everybody, that would do more than almost anything else that we could do for gender and sex inequality and for racial inequality. So appreciate you finishing us on that. Thank you, everybody, for spending this time. We had a caller who didn't end up getting on who wanted to make sure that we were reminded this is, in fact, Veterans Day. We remember that. And while we thank everybody who serves, this day in particular is for those who have risked their life for the country. We appreciate them, and we appreciate you. You are the coalition of the benevolently irrational, the good people doing good things for no good reason. Without you, democracy didn't have a chance. With you, you do have a chance, and you are priceless. Definition of priceless, worth a lot, not for sale. We had a chance to talk about flipping off the president today, Medicare and Medicaid. We had a chance to talk about what's the definition of a moderate. We'll tweet some stuff out, and we took your calls. It was an honor to be with you. Tom Hartman will be back with you tomorrow, which is a good thing, because this is called The Tom Hartman Show. I'm Jeff. Goodbye. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.